Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Saviour through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, I think it's... Ooh, that's a little echoey, isn't it? If I step back, perhaps. I think it's pretty remarkable uh, just how many movies riff on the idea that there actually isn't very much hope uh, for our planet. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned Avatar. At that point, we were talking about kind of the perspective that it has, uh, that movie has on our body, uh, that our real selves is kind of detached from our physical experience. Well, Avatar gets another mention today because the whole, the whole premise of the movie is that humanity has so trashed this planet Earth that we're kind of now scouring the universe for planets and moons that can be mined and so it's set on the remote moon Pandora that selfish humanity is now just trying to exploit as well. It's a pretty bleak picture of humanity and it's a pretty bleak picture of the future of our planet. And it seems that hopelessness for our planet runs through a whole bunch of films and if films give us any insight into our social thinking, I reckon they're worth reflecting on. Finch, last year, uh, came out, Tom Hanks looking ruggedly handsome there, but surviving a world that has gone through the impact of a solar flare. So not human-caused uh, climate catastrophe, but, but a pretty, pretty hopeless uh, perspective on this planet. Um, and then, you know, maybe it was back in 2014, the blockbuster interstellar Earth left in such a state that we're, we're scouring the universe to explore. In fact, it seems that 2014 was a pretty good year to feel hopeless about the planet. 
because it, it was a running theme for a whole bunch of movies. Snowpiercer is kind of very different genre, kind of edgy, social, political, environmental thriller thing going on. It was all about, you know, the disaster, the fallout of another ice age. And then at the other end of the spectrum in 2014, even the comedies got in on kind of a lack of hope about the future because Kingsman, it's all about this sort of secret service. But the bad guy at the centre of it, well, he's convinced that the only way you deal with the hopeless state of the planet is by culling off most of humanity. It's this, it's this constant theme running through so many of our movies, which I think reflects in society just a general sense of questioning what hope there is for our planet. And over the years, Christianity has been accused of being the cause of so much of the disaster that leaves our planet in a mess. Some people argue that most of our environmental disaster can be traced back to the Bible's teaching that humanity is the pinnacle of creation. We are the top of the tree, given the planet to, to dominate and to pillage. The argument being that the Bible gives an excuse that to think of the world as a resource, there's nothing more to be mined and damned and pillaged and exploited. So for some people, Christianity is one of the main reasons that our planet is in such a hopeless situation. But I think that's a failure to read the Bible properly, quite literally, from beginning to end. Because rather than give us an excuse to trash the planet, the Bible gives us every reason to care for it well. And while it shows just how responsible we are for the state of the planet, it also gives us the greatest reason for hope for this planet that the world has ever seen. Now, we're not going to try and cover off the Bible from beginning to end this morning. That would, that would be a bit too much to chew. Um, but this short passage from 2 Peter actually does a really helpful overview of that. Although at first glance, we might not have seen it. But let's, let's just dive right in. We're reading a letter from the Apostle Peter, written to churches facing hard times. And as we read in verse 1, Peter's whole reason for writing was to stimulate, as he says there, wholesome thinking. Not wishful thinking. Not blissful ignorance, not hopeless pessimism, wholesome thinking. So what is this wholesome thinking? Well, as he went on in verse uh, 3, sorry, this wholesome thinking needs to get the history of the world right. And so this is our first point that we're going to think through. The thinking rightly about the future and the hope that we have for this planet, it comes from thinking rightly about the past. You see, as Peter will point out, this is the fundamental issue with unwholesome thinking. And a whole lot of the anxiety and hopelessness and pessimism that seems to be circulating for us, it gets the future of our world wrong because it gets the history of our world wrong. So in verses 3 and 4 of what we've just read, Peter anticipates a scenario that I think sounds a lot like the world that we live in, where people scoff at the idea of Jesus returning. Where is this coming, he promised. And the people think who think that it's ridiculous to suggest that Jesus will return, well, here Peter says they're wrong about the future because they're wrong about the past. Uh, As verse 4 sums up, ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on just as it has since the beginning of creation. But that's not true, says Peter. Things have not always just gone on the same, the way that they are. As he says in verse 5, In the beginning, God, by his word, created the world. 
Now, Peter assumes that his audience kind of, they just get the whole picture that he's describing there. But what he's doing is he's actually pointing us back to the opening chapters of the Bible in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, where, where the beginning of creation, everything was very good. The planet was a paradise of life. And humanity was the pinnacle of this beauty. We, we are one of the creatures, but given the very special privilege of representing God in the universe, given the responsibility of having dominion over the earth, but not in the way that our English kind of connects dominion with dominating, but the image in Genesis is of stewards and caretakers. And this is how Genesis 2 puts it, um, using the image of gardeners. In Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to care for it, literally to, to keep it. This is the privilege of humanity, to care for God's good earth as his stewards, to take all of the beauty and the flourishing and the life and to help it to be beautiful and flourishing and, and life-giving, to enjoy its goodness. But of course, it didn't stay that way. And this is where people get their history wrong. Things haven't all gone on the same since then. Because in Genesis 3, we read of humanity's rebellion against our creator. And we read of God's mercy that though we deserved to die, well, he didn't blow us up then and there. Rather, he remained committed to this project of a relationship with his creatures and he had a plan for our restoration but to help us to understand just how royally we'd stuffed it up, our rebellion didn't just impact us. And so these are the words that, um, that God said to Adam. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you will return. Cursed is the ground because of you. Instead of flourishing provision, it'll be thorns and thistles. Instead of the privilege of eating from the trees of the garden... The human experience in this planet is eating weeds from the field. And God says our rebellion against him is so destructive that even the planet is, kind of, is burdened by its impact. And that's what Peter is referring to in verse 6 of what we just read from 2 Peter 3. He's reminding us that in Genesis, the world was good. But then by the time we get to chapter 6 and 9 of Genesis, God responds to the human evil that has spread across the world with a flood. Having created from water, God uses water in judgment, undoing so much of his creative work in a, in a giant flood that's kind of a, a reboot, humanity and the earth 2.0. But as anyone who's looked at the world out there, read the Bible, or, or even, let's be honest, just read a newspaper... You know that Noah's flood didn't actually fix the core of the problem, the problem of the human heart. And together with us, the planet remains under the curse of sin. That wasn't God's failure. He didn't sort of, oh, I tried there to wash it clean and it didn't work out. It was actually the whole point that he was making. We can't fix the world by just whittling down humanity and then hoping that a new generation to arise won't make all the same mistakes. You see, that is the wrong thinking about our past. It forgets that this planet was a paradise 
until humanity rebelled against God. And, and that wrong thinking about our past leads us to a wrong thinking about our future, that things, well, things will just tick over on and on and on like the way that they are now. But no, says Peter in verse 7, in some really confronting words, God's word's been really clear that the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. That's the future that the Bible holds forward. And so at this point, we're really confronted with an image of the future of our planet, and it's not pretty. The fire and judgment and destruction of the ungodly, the Bible says that's what's coming. And the Bible says it again and again and again, and yet I reckon we really struggle to believe it. Why is that? You think about your week. As you go about your weekly routine, you commute into work or you're visiting your friends in Belair or you're just heading down to to the shops to do what you do. What is it that makes it so hard to believe that Jesus really will return and that there really is a day of judgment to come? I reckon it's the simple fact that we live in 2023. It's nearly 2,000 years since Jesus rose and ascended into heaven saying he would come back. That's a really long time for things just to keep going on and on as they always have been. What evidence is there to expect that he is actually coming back? I mean, if, if we said Mahatma Gandhi or JFK or someone else is coming back, it would be outrageous. But, but Jesus said he was coming back. And yet it's hard to believe it when it's been so long. And look, if that's your question, it seems that you're in good company. It seems that Peter thought that was an entirely reasonable question to be wrestling with. I mean, he wrote just 30 years after Jesus had left, and clearly people were struggling with that already. And Peter helps us to see that this experience of life, just ticking along as it has before the year on year on year, that makes it hard to believe that Jesus might not be coming. But it's not that he's not coming, it's just that God is patient. Peter has for us here that wonderful phrase that reminds us that God views time differently to us. For us, 80 years is a lifetime. A thousand years, that's that's almost impossible to really get our heads around. But for God, a thousand years is just like a day, Peter says. It's a blink of an eye. And God's not slow. He's not forgotten. He's not misled us. No, he's patient. Giving time for people to hear and warning them to turn back before it's too late. So Peter says, that's our history that we need to get right. Recognising that this planet is a mess because the human heart is a mess. And that's even aside from the last few decades when kind of the impact of human-created climate change has come to light. Long before any of that showed up, the Bible has been perfectly clear. The mess of the planet is totally bound up in the mess of our relationship with God. It's not like, you know, if I sin here in Adelaide today, then another, Amazon, another, another, another butterfly dies in the Amazon tomorrow. It's not connected like that. But God is showing us that that our fate is so closely bound up with this planet that we are a part of this creation that God intends for good. But equally, our curse is its curse. Our hope is its hope. 
And I think that's what's so surprising about the hope that God gives for the planet. After all, I recognise that, you know, on first reading, this passage might seem to paint a pretty bleak picture for our planet, right? Fire and destruction to come. But I think we see here actually a picture of the real hope for the planet. In verse 10, we read, The day of the Lord will come. That's Peter reinforcing. Yes, it will come. It will come like a thief, which is to say it will come unexpected. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done on it will be laid bare. And I think if we're honest, that doesn't sound like a very hopeful picture for the planet, does it? And it doesn't get any better when we read on into verse 12. The heavens disappearing with a roar, destruction by fire, melting in the heat. Except if we remember our history. That our curse is its curse. That this planet is longing for the day when humanity will be set right. Because then the planet will be set right. And as Romans 8 puts it for us. The planet, every creature on it. Is longing. For the evil of the human heart to be laid bare, for the refining process that is needed for it to be cleansed and to be be done away with forever. Humanity and our planet are, are so intertwined that to bring hope for the planet requires the renewal of humanity. And the renewal of humanity is actually the only thing that will bring hope for the planet. And the really, really good news is that that's been God's project all along, renewing humanity freeing the planet from the curse of our sin. So actually the end of his plan is truly good news for the planet. As Matt took us with the kids to see the kind of the end point of this passage that we've read, this this great hope at the end of it all. In keeping with his promise, the promise that Jesus will come in this refining judgment, in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Where righteousness dwells. That's not just an afterthought. That's the whole plan. A new heaven and a new earth, it's not actually the end of the story is destruction and desolation. It's not like our movies would show a a desert wasteland or some interstellar search for somewhere better. It's not even the idea that the physical stuff gets deleted and we're left with some kind of happy spiritual existence. It's a real physical existence in the new heavens and the new earth. Because, Because the whole universe will be freed from the curse of human sin. Because God will dwell with the people he has renewed in the righteousness of his son. That's the real hope for the planet. And it's right at the centre of God's plans. All things made new. Because when Jesus returns, God will completely deal with the mess of human corruption and selfishness and greed of our hearts. And so in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So if that's what's coming... How then should we live now? Well, this is point three as we're finishing up. How should we live? See, I think what we learned from 2 Peter 3, it helps to protect us against kind of two ends of a spectrum that are both pretty popular today. On the one hand, the Bible protects us against that unrealistic optimism that we see a lot. 
And it's an optimism that can actually become a real burden. The optimism that thinks that if we get together and we work hard enough and we recycle enough and we go to renewables quick enough, we'll fix it. Actually, 2 Peter 3 says no. That's not going to work in the end. Because it doesn't go to the heart of the matter of our relationship with God. But you know the Bible actually also protects us against the other extreme of hopeless pessimism. That we can't possibly make any meaningful difference. This is all much too bigger than us and it's, I'm just the little guy and there's the big polluters and, and there's, there's the nature of the universe and I can't make any meaningful difference. So why bother trying to take any care of the planet? And just enjoy what you can while you can. No, the Bible says, we are stewards. We are gardeners. We have a role of incredible privilege. So what kind of people ought we be? Well, of course, Peter spoke to that, didn't he? Uh, in, In verse 11, he asked exactly that question. If this is the future, if that is the past, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. So what does that look like? I think for one thing it means living with eager expectation, looking forward to the day of Jesus returning and hoping that it comes soon because it's going to be really, really good. I mean, a a new heaven and a new earth where, where righteousness dwells that will be amazing beyond our imagination. It's creation freed from its bondage to decay, as Romans 8 puts it. We can look forward to a new creation that is, really is the real world, even more real than what we experience now. I think the creative minds of our cinema, they've done an amazing job of helping us to kind of picture what it would be. Avatar, glow-in-the-dark gardens and a whole sort of world that exists under the ocean. But even they simply can't fathom just how good the new creation will be. You ponder for a moment, if our sin and its consequences has been so pervasive that even the basic cellular biology of this planet has been impacted, then trying to imagine what the new creation will look like, freed from all of that, that's even more kind of captivating than the biggest transformations we can think of a caterpillar that turns into a butterfly a seed that grows into a flower we're looking at the caterpillar and the seed and god is just going to blow our mind with what is to come and so i think we ought to be optimistic people who genuinely look forward to the future of our planet when jesus returns because it's going to be really really good But while we wait, we do so, Peter said, living holy and godly lives. Now, that could mean all kinds of things, but I just thought of a couple of suggestions for us of what it might look like as we think about the environment and and our hope for the planet. So on one hand, I think if sin is our failure to garden well under God, to use that image of Genesis 2, then holy and godly lives, it's a call to the opposite, to garden well to recognise that we are stewards, not consumers. And there's heaps of secular people that are recognising the impact of our consumer mindset on just always wanting more. And I think if we started to frame our decisions with that perspective, we will see all kinds of ways to live differently. That's what it means to be holy and to live differently because of God. We'll see all kinds of ways to live in a a way that honours God. That's what it means to be godly. 
at a really practical level. It's choosing not to buy into the consumer mindset of our age, but instead to reflect on what it means to care for God's property in a way that honours him. So we, let's be honest, we live in an age of decadence, of luxury. And I think it should prompt us to think about whether we actually really need that luxury spend or not. We live in an age of planned obsolescence. My iPhone 8 is deliberately about five generations old. That's the way that Apple builds them. And we should be asking ourselves whether we, whether we really do need the latest version to be up to date in, in whatever it is that we're thinking about, our phones, our cars, our clothes, or whatever it is. And the world thinks of these as essential costs of living, but God calls us to garden well as stewards, not just consumers. And I think the second thought is actually pretty closely related. To love your neighbour. Because God has always been really clear that one of the primary ways that we show our honour of him is in the way that we love our neighbours. And in this space, as we think about the environment, well, there is no doubt that it's our poor neighbours who are most vulnerable to the fragility of our planet. Whether it is the disproportionate impact of rising sea levels on poorer countries or the devastating impact of deforestation that happens, uh, the impact that it has on Indigenous communities, the harsh realities that famine are almost always the consequence of human greed. Yes, the environment plays a part, but the interface of human greed is undeniable. Or just the simple impact of a heatwave on your neighbour who can't afford to turn on the air conditioner. The poor are the most vulnerable. So whilst it is true that you and I can't, you know, we can't shape the geopolitical landscape of Yemen, it's unlikely that any of us here are going to totally transform the future of the Amazon basin. And yet we can be thoughtful in our conduct. We can be generous in our giving. We can take our role seriously as stewards, loving our neighbour while we live in hope for this planet. Actually, I think living in hope for this planet, knowing the future that God has in store for us, that is what actually frees us from the kind of the rat race of consumerism because we know I don't have to get it all now, experience it all now, because the best is, that's yet to come. That's what frees us to be generous because we know we don't have to hang on to it now. But friends, I think perhaps verse 9 of what we've just read points us to the most profound action that we can take if we really care about the planet and if we really want to love our vulnerable neighbour. Paul put the timeline and, and, our, and our place in it in perspective when he said, God, God is not slow in keeping his promise. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And later on, he will say to them in just a few verses beyond what we said, bear in mind that the Lord's patience means salvation. Because you and I know the Lord Jesus, we can actually look forward to the new creation with incredible optimism, knowing that we'll have the immense joy of being a part of it. God's promise that when Jesus returns, those who are with him, they will enjoy the new heavens and the new earth and in all of their unimaginable beauty. But because the fate of humanity and the fate of this planet, they're so intertwined, to destroy sin on that day... That is actually, that's a fearsome future for those who don't know Jesus and haven't accepted his mercy and grace. 
As Peter is saying to us here, God would love to bring in the new heavens and the new earth. He's not sitting on his hands or just having an extended coffee break. The Bible presents God as the gardener, the ultimate gardener. And he hasn't left his garden aside thinking it's all a bit twisted and polluted, not much to be done there. No, he's rolled up his sleeves and he's down there even today. He's in the garden. He's bringing more children into the family so that they can join in the project. That's what he's done for you and I. He's been patient, not wanting us to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And if that's what the ultimate gardener is doing, what a privilege it is for us to roll up our sleeves to get dirty alongside him. Now, to give the briefest of book recommendations, um, this is a fantastic book, and as you can see, it is very brief. A great book on this topic, Is God Green? by Lionel Windsor, a pastor over in New South Wales. Details are on the sermon outline uh, online. Is God Green? Lionel Windsor points out how the image of a tree is used in the Bible from beginning to end. Because God invented trees, right? He thought them up. He gave them to us to tend and to nurture and to enjoy and to delight in. He pointed to them as the expression of his provision and rule, the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when we use those trees for our own selfish purposes, well, he had his son hung up on a tree. Not as a dead end, a road to nowhere, but as the ultimate highway to, to the God's renewal for all creation. And how does he describe the new creation? Well, there the tree of life is at the centre of it all. The centre of human existence with all its beauty, all its fruitfulness. Is God green? It's a great question. And Lionel Windsor helps us to say God is so much more than just green. God loves this world and the people who call it home. How much would you love for your neighbour, your colleague, to also know the great hope for this planet? It is so closely bound up with their own hope for eternity. Because it's true, isn't it? Things go on day by day. They just seem to go on exactly as they have for years and years. But God is not slow. He has not forgotten his promise that Jesus will return. He's been patient. He's giving time for us to invite our neighbours to be gardeners with us. To walk in the footsteps of the ultimate gardener. That's the hope for the planet. Will you pray with me? Our loving Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that you see this world in all its chaos of volcanoes and bushfires and floods, of drought and famine. Climate change in all its complexities comes as no confusion or surprise to you because you've taught us from the earliest days that the future of this planet is so closely tied up with the future of your children. And so, Father, we thank you that you love this planet and all who call it home. And you show us that our hope 
is its hope. Because its curse is our curse. And in the Lord Jesus, you have dealt with our sin. And when he returns, you will make all things new. So please help us to guard and well to recognise the incredible privilege that we have to be stewards, not consumers, to be those who honour you in the way that we honour this good earth that you have put us on and the neighbours who live here with us. Help us to be thoughtful people given to wholesome thinking because we've got the past right and we know what the future holds and we have every reason for hope because of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.